welcome to the Ark and Anth podcast. This is your host, Michael, and this is the podcast all about the study of human biology, human variation, and today, forensics. I would love to introduce you to Sarah Lockyer. Sarah, are you there? Yes, I am. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. Yourself? Uh, I'm doing very well here also. I, I'm just sort of relaxing at home on a weekend. And, you know, nothing excites me more than to talk to a forensic anthropologist. Oh, well, great. Well, I'm glad I could help you out on this weekday. On weekend, <laughs> actually. Weekends. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so where are you calling in from today, Sarah? I'm calling in from Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. Cool. And uh, what is it that you do in, in Ottawa, Canada? Um, well, I work for the Department of National Defense and the Canadian Armed Forces as their casualty identification coordinator. Uh, which is a lot of words to say forensic anthropologist. Oh, cool. Uh, And how long have you been working in forensics? Well, I've been working in this position for just over three years Mm -hmm. now. And and do you uh, are you part of a large uh, team or lab or is it just sort of you and a few others? Well, I'm uh, the casualty identification program is within the Directorate of History and Heritage at the Department of National Defense. So the Directorate of History and Heritage is a team of about forty to fifty employees. Now, there's only about five of us that are focused on the casualty identification program. Mm-hmm. Um, out of that five, um, I'm the only one who's focused on it full time while others have other responsibilities as part of their job. But they do uh, very much uh, help me with the program and, and are a big, very big part of it. Mm-hmm. And so how would you characterize the, the goals of the program? Well, the casualty identification program um, exists because for Canada, there's about 27,000 soldiers who have no known grave from the First World War, the Second World War, and the conflict in Korea. Mm-hmm. So the casualty identification program, um, its aim is to uh, try to identify the newly discovered skeletal remains of those soldiers so that they can be buried with their name, by their regiment, and in the presence of their family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, And when you are um, working on one of these cases, uh, how does the process first start? How do you, um, you know, what is the first call or the first email that you get usually? Right. Typically, um, the the way that we are informed that a potential Canadian soldier has been discovered is we'll get a notification from Commonwealth War Graves Commission. Um, They have a lot of employees and and, um, facilities on the ground, especially in northern France and in northern Belgium. And uh, they tend to be the first point of contact for the local authorities when a discovery has been made because they are there on the ground. So once it's been determined that the remains either are likely to be Canadian or could be Canadian, uh, then we are then informed uh, by Commonwealth Workers Commission's head office that a discovery has been made. Um, And and so... When when you first get notified like that, what do you do to um, prepare? Like, what is the first part of your, your job in this case? The first part of my job really is to uh, then consult with my colleagues who are military historians so that they could do a full historical analysis of the area where the remains were discovered to see, one, were the Canadian forces actually in that area, um, and then to try to determine how many soldiers were killed in action and went missing. So how many of them have no known grave from a battle that happened in that area, uh, which then gives us a good understanding of what the case could involve. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you know a little bit more about the context of it, um, would you have to uh, travel anywhere to to look at the remains? Yes, that's correct. For Canada and other Commonwealth nations, 
the remains are not repatriated to their home countries. So the remains of soldiers killed in action, um, Canadian soldiers killed in action during the First World War, for example, are not repatriated to Canada. They're buried in the closest appropriate cemetery to where they fell. Mm -hmm. So typically, a lot of the times that's in France and in Belgium. So the remains are uh, stored at a facility in northern France. It's a Commonwealth War Graves Commission facility. They're stored there, and I have to travel to them to be able to do the the anthropological analysis of those remains. Mm-hmm. Is the burial and storage of of human remains a very a, a very common thing? Like, would you find similar facilities in other parts of France or in other parts of Europe or the world? Well, typically, what happens, um, from my understanding, in any way, is that each country takes care of their own soldiers, and then whatever process that they go through is is up to that country to decide. And I know that there are some countries that do more mm-hmm. than what Canada does. And I know that there's countries that do less than Canada does for a variety of different circumstances. And um, so it also depends. There, there are not necessarily designated storage facilities all over the world. But um, if something were to happen, for example, in a country other than France or Belgium, where the Commonwealth War Mission facility is easy to access, um, arrangements could be made with, um, I don't know, a Canadian Armed Forces base that's overseas or, or even an embassy to see if they could temporarily store something like that until we'll be able to um, action accordingly and then hopefully bury them in a proper cemetery. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so all of that's really fascinating. Um, I uh, I know that you specialize in in analyzing the human skeletons, right? Correct. Yes. Um, and so, uh, but, but before we get to that, do you try and look at um, other other artifacts or other uh, forms of evidence first? Yes. So as part of when we get the notification um, and then my, my historian colleagues start looking at the historical backgrounds, the artifacts that are found with the remains are hugely, hugely important because there might be something that uh, has their name on it. There could be a unit identifier, so a specific battalion, for example, that could help us narrow down the list of potential candidates, or just simply something that says the word Canada on it to make sure that, okay, well, the right country is taking responsibility for these remains. So the artifacts are hugely important. Unfortunately, it happens a lot of the times that remains are only found with sort of general Commonwealth equipment Mm -hmm. that any Commonwealth soldier um, would have had. So sometimes things like a general service buttons or just a helmet, for example, might have been used by multiple nations within the Commonwealth. So that can make things a bit more tricky. And of course, it happens that... um, the artifacts are, are looted sometimes before before we're able to to uh, recover everything that needs to be recovered. Mm-hmm. That happens a lot. That people are low, are walking the old battlefields in that area, and and they they want the cap badge or they want something that they see on the grounds that that could have been a huge part in the identification process. Um, So when we do have artifacts, when we find identification discs, those are are really exciting cases because. The, the possibility of us being able to identify that individual uh, becomes that much stronger. Right. Uh, when you come to analyze the human remains, though, do you try to not consider the artifacts so that you kind of remain impartial or, or does it not really work like that? Well, for me, because I'm not a historian, I try to keep myself removed from the historical process as much as possible so that I don't have a bias and I don't make assumptions like that. Mm -hmm. But however, we also have to keep remembering all the time that during the First World War, uh, the soldiers themselves would either sort of trade certain uh, cap badges or unit badges or buttons with other soldiers from other units or other 
um, forces, allied forces, or they, they might see something shiny on the ground, pick it up and put it in their pocket. So just because an artifact was found with a set of remains, mm-hmm. we do not automatically consider that set of remains to actually have owned that artifact or that piece of, of, of uh, that identifier that could help us out. So we do have to question everything mm-hmm. um, just to be on the safe side and to make sure that we're not making assumptions that could lead us down the wrong path. Yeah, it just sounds like there's... Um you know, many assumptions that we should try to uh, avoid making because we, we can't um, understand completely what the picture what the picture was before those bones were interred in the ground or even between when they were put in the ground and today. Absolutely. And and it's it's the, 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 the example that I always give because people are like, oh, well, he had an identification disc, like it must be him. Well, no, because let's say, you know, my friend and I are, are you know, soldiers during the First World War. Um, and we both have identification discs, um, and, or no, sorry, actually, I would be the only one with an identification mm-hmm. disc because I had paid for it. So what happens if I was killed, my friend next to me decides, you know what, I think Sarah's mother would really appreciate having that identification disc, takes it off my body, puts it in their pocket, but then they themselves are killed 10 minutes later with my identification disc in their pocket. Right. So, so we can't make those assumptions. There has to be links between the artifacts, between the historical background to make sure that, you know, we can explain why those things were there um, to make sure that, like I said, we're, we're focused on the right group of individuals for an identification. Yeah. 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 And so, um, you know, I, I was uh, reading some articles uh, about your work uh, because you've been uh, talking, like your work has been talked about, or you have uh, given interviews before this. And I noticed that you mm-hmm. described the forensic anthropology process as kind of like a, a puzzle. Yeah. Um, I was wondering if you could expand on that. Absolutely. Well, because also um, when you consider the circumstances in which these soldiers died, um, it's quite horrific with the First World War and, and or any kind of war, to be honest. And then in a lot of areas, uh, one battlefield where a lot of remains have been discovered is called the Battle of Hill 70, which happened in August 1917. While it was successful from a Canadian perspective because we were able to, to take the land, um, the, the Germans continued to attack uh, with shelling and bombing consistently for extra 10 days. So even if a soldier was killed in action and was temporarily buried by his comrades um, to, to make sure that they weren't disturbed, it doesn't mean that the fighting over that particular area stopped. Um, and then you consider the fact that the Second World War happened, relatively speaking, in the same geographical area shortly thereafter mm-hmm. um, is another thing that we have to consider. So a lot of the times the the remains that I receive are badly damaged. Um, a lot of, sometimes also they, they, they're not the complete individual mm-hmm. at all. So uh, you are limited sometimes in the remains that you have so that it makes establishing a biological profile a bit more complicated, a bit more difficult. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it also happens. You have to think of, okay, well, if I found just one leg, could that soldier have survived the war but lost his leg and the leg was left on the battlefield or was the rest of his remains found and actually already properly buried in a cemetery somewhere else and they just unfortunately left the leg behind Mm -hmm. so there's all these things that you have to start putting together and and thinking about the larger context surrounding the the circumstances of death Mm -hmm. to try to sort of then narrow and pinpoint who was in the area, who died in the area, who went missing in the area, and then 
try to put it all together. Yeah, fascinating. Um, uh, what's what's typically included when you are trying to develop a biological profile? Uh, well, when I'm doing a biological profile, it's it's pretty much the same as any sort of typical uh, anthropological analysis. So, so age, sex, height, any trauma on the bones. Um, I do try to see if I can determine ancestry or not. And, and the reason for that, um, even though, yes, it is a bit um, in modern cases, there are some discussions in the field as to its validity. But um, for me, there are the soldiers were born in the late 1800s. So population movement at that time was much less than it is today, for example. Mm-hmm. And also, um, it so happens that in the list of missing of soldiers from the Canadian Expeditionary Force from the First World War, there are Japanese names, for example. And then when you look up these soldiers or personnel files, their place of birth is Japan. So if I can use Ancestry to help maybe even further narrow down the list of potential candidates to focus on an individual um, with the right sort of um, Ancestry, then that's another thing I look at. When it comes to any pathology on the bone, um, it's, it's rare that I find any pathology on the bone simply because the soldiers had to pass some sort of medical exam to actually be able to enlist right. in an expeditionary force. But we have had a case in the past where syphilis was found on the bones, yet there was no mention of syphilis anywhere in the personnel file. (laughs) So why was it not in the personnel file? Now, this particular soldier was a bit of a higher rank. He was not a private. He was at a higher rank. So was it in sort of, if I can use this term, ungentlemanly thing to Mm-hmm. provide in the personnel file that, that this individual had syphilis, you know, so there are all these things that we have to consider as to how these people thought a hundred years ago that could affect the information that's available to us to help try to identify this person. Yeah. Are there um, biological variables that you find are, um, can be quite tricky to work out than others? Um, not at this point, simply because my sample size, if I look at the, the whole thing, the sample size is still rather small at this point. Um, but it did happen for a case uh, that we were recently able to, um, to identify that when I did the, uh, the biological profile and I was able to take um, measurements from the I believe it was the radius to determine height because there were no lower leg bones available. The height range that that calculation provided me was actually uh, two to three inches shorter uh, than the individual who it was actually ended up being. Mm -hmm. So we do have to constantly think about that as well. Now, the biggest thing we have to remember is that a lot of soldiers during the First World War lied about their age. Mm -hmm. So the date of birth that they give on their attestation paper uh, you know, when we calculate backwards, you could say, oh, they're 23, when actually when you start looking at the bones, this individual is actually 18 years old. So Why? Why would, why would they lie? Well, because you weren't able to enlist until you were 18. Okay. And some, you know, young men, if, if uh, depending on their situation or if they really wanted to enlist, but they were 16 years old, you know, had, would have to lie about their age to actually be able to enlist. And I know that there are some headstones in Commonwealth War Graves Commission cemeteries um, overseas where the age of the soldier is 14 years old. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the more recent soldiers that we were able to identify was 18 years old when he died. And he did lie on his attestation papers to enlist um, and made himself seem two years older than he was having enlisted at 16 years old. Mm -hmm. Wow. So that's the biggest sort of like, if I can use the word variation-ish, um, really, it's, that's the biggest thing that we have to, to, to consider. Yeah. Uh, do we have women taking part in these, um, in these wars? Um, in the First World War, if, if I remember correctly, there were the nursing sisters 
Um, so they were there as nurses, but as, as soldiers, no, okay. that was not something that was, uh, that was mm-hmm. done. And um, uh, at least in, in my field of bioarchaeology, uh, we sometimes it's it's ideal, perhaps, like if we wanted to find out more about an individual, we would use these really expensive methods to, to do DNA. Is that something that you ever do as well? Absolutely. We use DNA very frequently. We also do sometimes stable isotope analysis. With the stable isotope analysis, we uh, try to see if we can maybe have a general idea of their place of birth, Mm -hmm. simply because place of birth is listed on the attestation papers. And we don't really think that the soldiers lied about that particular piece of information. But also in the Canadian Expeditionary Force for the First World War, about 50% of the soldiers were actually born in England had immigrated to Canada and enlisted with the Canadian Expeditionary Force. So, and it's about 50%. Mm-hmm. So if we're able to sort of determine uh, with using stable uh, isotope analysis, you know, where they were born, was it England versus Canada, which have different readings, uh, that can then further narrow down the list of potential candidates. And DNA, yes, we use DNA all the time. Not all of our cases will use DNA analysis depending on the other evidence that's found with the remains, but the vast majority of them, we do yeah. use DNA. Um, is there an example, and uh, you can keep the, the people uh, anonymous, but um, was there an, is there an example of a case which uh, really uh, was meaningful to you and, and really f- made you feel like, you know, this is the job that you really enjoy doing? Uh, yeah, there's almost each case really has something like that. Um, but for me... The, the one that sticks out in my mind more than anything else is the first case that I worked on from start to finish. And um, that is uh, a soldier by the name of Sergeant Harold Wilfred Shaughnessy, who was killed during the Battle of Hill 70. Um, and on top of him being sort of the first start to finish case that I worked on, um, there were a lot of similarities between him and I, we were, we're both in our early 30s. We were both born in the province of New Brunswick. Uh, we had both studied in Montreal. We were both born in the same months. So there was a lot of things that were very similar in our lives. And, and then you kind of think, uh, you know, thinking to what this gentleman had gone through um, at, at my age and, and the horrors that he must have seen. And, and that's the case that's sort of sticks out in my mind is the most. And also um, his great nephew, I got a chance to meet his great nephew at the burial ceremony. And um, Mm -hmm. I still get Christmas cards from the great nephew. Um, So that's kind of a really nice thing that, that, that keeps happening uh, every year since we buried Sergeant Shaughnessy. And um, every single time that I'm able to sort of say, no, like I was, directly involved in getting a positive outcome for this soldier and returning his name and, and him being properly buried with his comrades. It's, it's always a very special feeling and a privilege to be a part of. So every case has a little something, but Sergeant Shaughnessy's is the one that sticks out in my mind mm-hmm. the most. And so uh, when you do identify um, who the human remains belong to, um, what happens mm-hmm. between then and reburial? Um, so there's a number of different things that, that need to be considered uh, from the day that, yes, identification has been confirmed. Uh, we do so through a review board. We call it the Casualty Identification Review Board. Um, and so we come together and, and discuss the case and, and then make a decision on whether my recommendation for identification is sound. Mm-hmm. Then um, the, the information more or less gets transferred to my colleague who is responsible for organizing the burials. So the Canadian Army um, is responsible for burying the soldiers. 
So um, then also we have to track down the official next of kin. So the oldest, closest living relative um, of the soldier that we've identified to one inform them that the relative has been identified. And uh, typically the, the two closest next of kins are, are invited and, and join us for the burial ceremony overseas so mm-hmm. that they can participate and be there when, when their relative gets buried. So on top of that, there's also things like caskets. Uh, the caskets that we use, we get them made here in Canada from Canadian maple, and then we ship them overseas for the burial ceremony. The regiment is also involved because the regiment, they bury their own. So, mm-hmm. um, for example, if I can use this example, the, the 10th Battalion that was active during the First World War, the regiment that uh, sort of perpetuates it, so essentially sort of um, that 10th Battalion has now become the Calgary Highlanders. So if we're burying a soldier from the 10th Battalion, the Calgary Highlanders are involved and they send over some soldiers and the soldiers bury their own. And then, of course, there's a lot of discussion that happens with the North War Graves Commission to make sure that um, their staff is available to help bury the individual by uh, digging the, the grave plots, uh, creating the headstone with the soldier's name on it, mm-hmm. and, and making sure that everything goes smoothly. Yeah. Um, and, and do you also um, attend the burial service? Uh, typically, I do. Now, um, I'm quite fortunate that when I go overseas to do my regular sort of uh, anthropological work on the remains, I'm quite flexible in my schedule. So I can make it so that I can go overseas to attend the burials, and then at the same time, I can do the work that needs to be done. Mm-hmm. Uh, on par- as part of my regular responsibilities. Uh, but I do, yes, I do get a chance to go to the burials. I get a chance to, to meet the soldiers. I get a chance to meet the families. Um, and also I, I get the chance to do any media interviews so that uh, we, we can announce to, to fellow Canadians and, and other interested parties, uh, international, that uh, we are able to do this and we were successful in that case. Right. And is that experience quite emotional for you? It, it is. And it's... Um, now, I, I do give sort of uh, speaking or talks to, to high school students and sometimes junior high students. And, and a lot of the times I, I get asked, you know, if, if I, I cry all the time because of my job or if uh, it gets really emotional and things like that. And, and typically, no, I, I don't get emotional. But when you get to the burial ceremony and the casket gets brought in and it's draped with a Canadian flag and um, the the, the service uh, gets going and then there's some music involved and then you see how important this is to the soldiers who are there to bury the, uh, the, the individual who died during the First World War and you see what this means for the families. That's when it starts really getting emotional and, and, and uh, much more of a human connection mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, this is my job. I have to do my job. Yeah. Um, and it's not something that you would probably view as like a, a struggle, but it's just, you know, it's emotional because it's, a, it's such a, an honor and a, or a privilege to do the work. Exactly. And, and if I can use an example earlier this summer, um, any personal artifacts that are found with the remains are returned to the family. And um, earlier this summer, we were able to, to uh, reunite some remains uh, to a soldier who had already been buried following the war, but some extra partial remains had been found after the fact. And some artifacts had been found, including a ring with his initials on it. And I was able to give that ring back to the soldier's grandson. Mm-hmm. And uh, the grandson got very, very emotional. And it was very hard for me to keep, keep it professional and, and not become a, an emotional uh, a person who started crying in front of everybody. It was very difficult. But at the same time, it, it, it very much is a privilege to be able to witness how important it was for this grandson to have his grandfather's ring back for somebody who had never met. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not necessarily a difficulty per se, 
but it's it's uh, definitely emotions come into it. But I try to make sure that I keep that for the very end once the case has been concluded, so that I don't get emotionally attached. Um, which could potentially be a detriment to the investigative yeah. process. When when the cases are done, do you ever find yourself um, just outside of work thinking about the individuals and thinking about their families? Like has has uh, has has it you know en- entered your life in any other way or made you think about life and death in a in in, in interesting it, ways? It does. Um, when it comes to the sheer amount of death in relation to the first world war, for example, um, Canada sent about, uh, I believe 600,000 soldiers, um, during that time. And about 60,000 were killed in action. I mean, that's, that's 10%, which Mm -hmm. is a huge amount of death. And then you start sort of asking yourself, and sometimes I do ask myself, was it really worth it? Um, no, of course, those are just sort of some personal reflections because I have to directly physically see the aftermath that a lot of people don't see. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then at the same time, though, um, understanding that even though, yes, it's been 100 years or over 100 years since the First World War, um, Yes, you do think about this, the families. And, and like I said, like when uh, Sergeant Shaughnessy's family, they, they very much keep in touch. They send me photographs of, of certain things that they've done to all, continue to honor mm-hmm. uh, Sergeant Shaughnessy. And, and like I said, they send Christmas cards. So now and again, there's always something that comes up that sort of brings me back and, and thinking about these families and, and also thinking about what it means to them and, and how it evolves. And we've also had some stories of... of um, family members, living family members who uh, tell us that because of our research and us getting in touch with them to potentially get a DNA, uh, DNA sample or anything like that, mm-hmm. that they've now since met cousins and, and other family members that they never met before, that they had never um, had the chance to meet or didn't even know existed. Cool. Yeah. That's an also really other rewarding part of the job that comes back now and again, that's, that's um, somehow I, I helped sort of families get back together, which is kind of really yeah. amazing. Uh, like 10 years ago, when I first embarked upon this <laughs> uh, journey into anthropology, I think I was imagining that I would probably do a job like yours, mm-hmm. but it's changed a little bit to, to more ancient uh, individuals instead. <laughs> um, when you first started out, I'm, I'm sure you had an, a slight idea about wh- what you might be doing in the future. Are you doing exactly what you think, what you thought you were going to do? Um, I'm very close. And it's, it's kind of um, interesting to, to find out and think back because when I started thinking that I might potentially want to do this, um, I, I really wanted to do, I was 16 years old when I, when I found out about forensic anthropology and it was really sort of, okay, forensics, 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 let's, let's go down into forensics. And, and then it evolved into potentially um, doing things related to human rights violations or, or mass graves or disaster victim identification, things like that. Mm-hmm. And as I was going through school, which was continued to be fascinating and really interesting, it, it became very apparent that uh, full-time forensics job or forensic anthropology jobs were, were not very common. There were not, <laughs> it's not like somebody was just handing them out to everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I actually finished my PhD, um, I was fully under the impression that I would never get to work in the field. Um, that if I did, if I somehow managed to get a job in the field, it, it might be sort of doing archaeology work or it might be uh, teaching at a university or anything like that, but doing uh, identification work might not happen, um, or if it did, it'd be sporadic um, on an on-call basis. 
Um, so when I actually started working after my PhD, I was doing something completely unrelated to the fields. I was doing administrative positions, um, pretty much anything that paid the rent, right. <laughs> whatever that I could get. And by some miracle, um, I knew that there was one job in the Canadian public service that uh, did forensic anthropology type work. And um, by a little bit of luck and, and being persistent and uh, keeping in touch with people that I had met, um, I, I somehow managed to be able to, to get the position that I, that I do now, the job that I have now. Wow. But there, it wasn't like an easy road or a straightforward road. Oh, absolutely not. I, I finished my PhD and, and I searched for a job for two years after I finished. And, and the only thing I could get at the time was part-time reception work in a yoga studio mm -hmm. because nobody else wanted to hire me. They were all thinking that, oh, well, you have a PhD, so you'll leave for something better. So there's no point you coming and working for us for two months and then you'll leave and go get something better. Wow. That was a lot of the attitude that I was, uh, I was facing. And then it was very difficult to convince them otherwise. I'm like, no, no, just, you know, even if I'm only here for a few months, like I, I can do something that's, uh, that's, that's valuable, that, that adds value to your enterprise or, or I have transferable skills. Mm -hmm. And um, there was a, one gentleman here in Ottawa who took a chance on me and gave me a job as an executive assistant in his office. And he worked in human resources, right. which is nowhere near related to anthropology. And admittedly, I didn't know much about human resources, um, but he gave me an opportunity and um, that was the stepping stone into the Canadian Public Service, which I then sort of morphed into other administrative jobs, um, jobs a bit more related to the field with cultural resource management um, until I was able to, to get the one that I have now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, you've been working in forensic anthropology now for a number of years. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask you, you know, what do you think are some uh, big challenges that face the field more broadly at the moment? When it comes to the field broadly, from what I see anyway, is that uh, there's a lot of um, opportunities within um, like a, a police force, for example, that our skills could be used, but that sometimes they're not seeing it as, as being sort of value added unless a, a set of remains has been discovered. Um, but that is changing much more, much more so. But also at the same time within Canada, um, there are not too many cases where the, the skills of a forensic anthropologist strictly of analyzing um, skeletal remains mm -hmm. are, are happen, thankfully. I mean, because with, with this type of job, something terrible has to happen before you're able to do it, which is not really the best. But um, I think also it's just sort of um, understanding that there are individuals who have a skill set that could definitely be useful and help out in a number of different types of investigations. but that skill set also has other transferable skills that could mm -hmm. be used in other fashions yeah. as well. Are, are you training any uh, up and coming forensic anthropologists at the moment? Unfortunately, no. And I'm always on the lookout to potentially be doing that. It's just that right now the, the program is so small and there would not be enough work uh, for me to, to have a sort of, a, if I can use this term, sort of a forensic anthropology intern. Right. Now I, I do have a, a co-op student that uh, works with me. They are typically a history student because a lot of the work that they're doing is much more focused on the historical background or doing genealogical research. It doesn't directly pertain to any work done with the remains. Mm -hmm. But I'm always on the lookout to see, are there any opportunities that do come up in the future that maybe gives us finally the opportunity to help uh, with, uh, with uh, forensic anthropology students, see if there's anything in there that I can offer them to help uh, train them or anything like that. So I'm always on the lookout for that. But I'm always 
mm-hmm. whenever I meet students who are willing, uh, who have questions or anything like that, I'm always willing to talk to them and to offer any advice or, or anything like that simply because I remember when I was a student and if I had somebody in the field more or less attention to me, it was a huge confident boost and it was a huge motivational boost for me. So, so if I can do that for a student and if it helps them in any shape or form, I'm more than happy to, to sit down and have a chat with them. Definitely. Are there any other areas of uh, forensics or even outside of forensics that you are um, interested in or you've been working on? Um, as for working on, no, I'm, I'm quite busy with, with this because I am currently working on trying to identify 38 sets of remains uh, all from the First World War. Mm-hmm. I would love to do at some point uh, help out on disaster victim identification cases or human rights violation cases, um, because that's really what got me into it, was sort of exhuming mass graves and and, uh, the the example that I had uh, stumbled upon when I was younger was, of course, uh, the the genocide in Rwanda and exhuming those mass graves. Now, I'm not saying it specifically would have to be those mass graves, but um, being able to, to help on something like that is something that I hope to be able to do sometime. Yeah, I remember when I was uh, an undergraduate student, I was reading, um, uh, there's an autobiography sort of uh, called The Bone Woman by Clea Koff. That is the first book I read when I was 16 years old. Yes. Um, There's another one called Silent (laughs) Witness, I think, by someone called Roxana Ferlini. Yes. uh, Sorry, it was funny because I, I bought those two books when I was 16 years old. And then when I started my master's program, the course coordinator for my master's program was Roxana Ferlini. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it was just like, this is a weird coincidence and, and have her book. But yes, those two books were, were crucial for me as, as a teenager to think that maybe this is the path that I want to go down. Yeah. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think that a lot of people, um, including me, you know, one of their first exposures to this field is through the TV show Bones. Yes. And uh, several other ones as well, crime, crime investigation ones. Um, what are some, uh, are there any like myths about what we do that you think, uh, you know, that, that you find funny or that you think, you know, we can help, uh, you know, debunk at the moment? Right. Well, for me, the, the biggest one in relation to my job right now is that DNA is the greatest thing since sliced bread. <laughs> and that if you have DNA from the bones, well, you're all set. You're good to go. You can identify this person. Um, so while bones and CSI, don't get me wrong, are very, very entertaining. And I, I quite enjoy both of those television shows as, as entertainment. Um, it, it's not that simple and it's not that black and white. And also the types of DNA that we use to identify soldiers um, it's, it's not, uh, they're not unique types of DNA. What we typically use is mitochondrial DNA and Y chromosome short tandem repeat DNA. And those passed unchanged from one generation to the next. So the, the DNA we use will not confirm an identification of a soldier because it's also, it's not like the soldier left behind a toothbrush that nobody's touched and perfectly preserved for a hundred years. Mm-hmm. So the unique identifier type of DNA, we can't actually use that. So the, I think that for me is the biggest myth that I, I would hope to, to debunk a little bit to, to help with our investigations so that just people understand that while yes, DNA is a great tool and it certainly helps us, it sometimes um, can actually cause complications where we have false positives because we do encounter many false positives. Mm-hmm. And that it's not as simple as sort of saying, okay, well, I have a family member. I have DNA from, this, from the remains. We make a comparison and we have a match. It doesn't really work that way. There, there are statistical probabilities that come into it. and We have to make evaluations on how strong the results are. Yeah. So 
That would be the biggest one for me is that while DNA, yes, it's great. It's a great tool. Um, it, it doesn't necessarily always make the process simpler. Right, exactly. Um, so uh, all of this has been great. What are your upcoming plans? Well, quite frankly, in uh, the middle of November, we have another casualty identification review board coming up. Mm -hmm. So uh, we're convening the board and we're going to review a number of cases and come to uh, a resolution on those, uh, which means that we're highly likely going to be preparing for burials over the summer. Okay. Yeah. It never stops. And, and uh, we're just waiting also to see if any new discoveries have happened this year in 2019. I haven't been advised of them yet, uh, but I anticipate because construction is happening quite a bit uh, in the area of the Battle of Hill 70 in France, that uh, there will be more remains that are discovered, which means the work continues. Okay. Mm -hmm. And uh, if people want to follow this work that you're doing or ask you any questions about our interview, can they find you on Twitter or any other platform? Yes, absolutely. So if, if they have any questions, uh, they can certainly reach out to me on, on Twitter. Uh, my handle is uh, S as in Sarah underscore Lockyer. L-O-C-K-Y-E-R. Uh, they can also just Google casualty identification. And uh, the website for the casualty identification program uh, is the first one that comes up when you Google casualty identification uh, so that they can learn more about the program there. And there's also a way to get in touch with us and send us any questions that way through the website. Amazing. Um, and before we go, uh, I usually try to ask the guests for a hashtag. Do you have one for this episode? You know what? I think the best one would be would be Casualty ID would probably be the best Excellent. one. Excellent. That's a great one. <laughs> so listeners, if you like this episode, then definitely leave us a review on iTunes or even on our Facebook page. I really appreciate any ratings that you want to give and reviews of the show. They really help me out. Find new episodes of the podcast at arcananth.com or on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere else you find podcasts. Whenever there's a new episode, I usually post it on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Reddit. And all of that is supported by the patrons of the show. And I'm really, really thankful for the patrons who help keep the show going. For more information about our patron program, then go to patreon.com slash arcananthpod. Sarah, thank you so much for being today's expert. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. And uh, listeners, thank you for listening. I'll have another episode out for you soon. Goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Thanks for listening. Thank you.